Chapter 28, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 28, Part 2. Columbus. No Catholic Englishman was anything like so widely known in Europe. Books have been written about him in many languages, and his works translated into French, German, Dutch, Czech, Russian, Polish, Spanish, and Italian. A letter from Russia asks for his photograph for the magazine of international literature, as a writer whose works are well known in the Soviet Union. The Kulturbund in Vienna sends an emissary, inviting him there also, and, like Prague, the Vienna Pen Club wants him. You have a distressing habit, Maud Royden once wrote, of being the only person one really wants to hear on certain subjects. A visit to Rome in 1929 produced The Resurrection of Rome. Despite brilliant passages, the book is disappointing. It bears no comparison with the New Jerusalem and gives an impression of being thrown together hastily before the ideas have been thought through to their ultimate conclusions. Perhaps Rome was too big, even for Chesterton. He never loved the Renaissance as he did the Middle Ages, but he saw it not as primarily pagan, but as one more example of the immense vitality of a Catholicism which had had so many rebirths that it had buried its own past deeper than the past of paganism. He loved the fountains that threw their water everywhere, and he felt about Rome that the greatest monuments might be removed and yet the city's personality would remain, for Rome is greater than her monuments. He wanted to argue with those who cared for pagan Rome alone and who spent their time despising the oratorian stone of the papal city and gazing only on the forum. And it never once occurs to them to remember that the old Romans were Italians or to ask what a forum was for. He was, as usual, constantly invited to lecture at the English College, the Scots College, the American College, the Beda. At the Holy Child Convent, he spoke to a crowded audience on Thomas Moore and humanism. Father Cuthbert, OSFC, thanking him, remarked on the mental resemblance between Moore and Chesterton, saying that he could quite well imagine them sitting together making jokes, some of them very good and some of them very bad. Chesterton and Moore, says Father Vincent McNabb, were both cockneys. Gilbert's classical insight also seemed to him like the great chancellor's. Erasmus says that though Moore did not know much Greek, he knew what the words ought to mean. He interviewed Mussolini and found that Mussolini was interviewing him, so that he talked at some length of distributism and his own social ideal. Mussolini knew at least some of Gilbert's books. He told Cyril Clemens that he had keenly enjoyed The Man Who Was Thursday. He promised at the end of this interview that he would go away and think over what Chesterton had said and it might have been better for the world had he kept that promise. For what had been said was an outline of the one possible alternative to the growing tyranny of governments. From his anxiety to be fair to fascism, Gilbert was often accused of being in favor of it, but both in this book and in several articles, having given the case for it, he went on to give the case against it, a much stronger case than that usually given by its opponents. The case for fascism lay in the breakdown of true democracy and the reign of the tyranny of wealth in the democratic countries. Chesterton Wood, he said, had been on the side of the 
Partito Populari, as against the fascism that succeeded. In England and America, he would have infinitely preferred that the purgation of our plutocratic politics should have been achieved by radicals and republicans. It was they who did not prefer it. It was not that fascism was not open to attack, but that liberalism has unfortunately lost the right to attack it. Those of us who were in Italy at that time will remember the truth of his description of the vitality and happiness that seemed to glow among the people. Giovinezza Bellezza, heard everywhere, had then no hollow sound at the heart of it. Italy was radiant with hope. In Mussolini himself, Gilbert saluted a belief in the civic necessity of virtue, in the ideal that public life should be public, in human dignity and respect for women as mothers, in piety and the honor due to the dead. Yet summing up the man and the movement, he saw it as primarily the sort of riot that is provoked by the evils of an evil government. Only in the Italy of the 20th century, the rioters have become the rulers. For although Mussolini had in many ways made his rule popular, although in his concessions to modern ideas and inventions he was rather breathlessly progressive, yet in the true sense of the word, Mussolini was a reactionary. A reactionary is one who merely reacts against something or permits that something to make him do something against it. A reactionary is one whom weariness itself has become a form of energy. Even when he is right, there is always a danger that what was really good in the previous society may be destroyed by what is good in the new one. Mussolini's reaction was against the liberalism in which, as an idea, Chesterton still believed. It was a reaction from democracy to authority, and its weakness, the fundamental weakness of fascism, was that it appeals to an appetite for authority, without very clearly giving the authority for the appetite. When I try to put the case for it in philosophical terms, there is some doubt about the ultimates of the philosophy. It seemed to Chesterton that there were only two possible fixed and orderly constitutions, hereditary monarchy or majority rule. The demand of the fascists to hold power as an intelligent and active minority was, in fact, to invite other intelligent and active minorities to dispute that rule. And then, only by tyranny, could anarchy be prevented. Fascism, he said in summary, has brought back order into the state, but this will not be lasting unless it has brought back order into the mind. The two things in the Roman visit that remain most prominent in Dorothy's memory are Gilbert's loss of a medal of Our Lady that he had always wore in his audience with the Holy Father. The loss of the medal seemed to distress him out of all normal proportion. He had the elevator boy looking forward on his hands and knees and gave him a huge reward for finding it. Gilbert has left no record of his papal audience, but, says Dorothy, it excited him so greatly that he did no work for two days before the event or two days after. Their second visit to America, 1930-1931, was far better enjoyed by Gilbert, and also, I think, by Frances, until she got ill, because on it they came closer to the real people of the country, especially during the period when he was lecturing at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana. They lived at a little house in South Bend, and he lectured every night, alternating a course on Victorian literature with one on the great figures of Victorian history. There were 36 lectures all told, and the average attendance at each was 500. At Notre Dame and the Sister College of St. Mary's, I felt the best way to get the atmosphere of this visit would be to get together for a talk the people who remembered Gilbert. They would stimulate one another's memories. 
I invoked the aid of Sister Madaleva, and she suggested the two fathers, Leo Ward, Professor Engels and O'Grady, and, best of all, Johnny Mangan, the chauffeur. Johnny is a great institution at Notre Dame. He remembered driving my father nearly 30 years ago, and he had specially vivid memories of the Chesterton period. We all sat in a circle in Sister Madaleva's sitting room. I give here the notes I took. Johnny Mangan. It was the hardest job getting him into the car, harder getting him out. He'd walk on the porch and all the children came. He talked to the children on the road. Money meant nothing to him. The lady would give me the money, saying himself, would leave it in the shop if the barber wasn't honest enough to give change. He enjoyed everything. When they dedicated the stadium, he stayed till the very end. Father O'Donnell introduced him to all the naval officers, and he was the last off the ground. He enjoyed talking to all the naval officers. He loved cheerleading. Mr. O'Grady. He spent one evening in Professor Phillips' room after the lecture from 9 to 2.30 a.m. His host was deaf. G.K. learnt later, and he made another date when he found his host had missed most of the fun. Mr. Engels. He would sit around consuming homemade ale by the quart, said the head of the philosophy faculty, made the best brew in the college, enjoyed little drives around the countryside, and the faculty were a little shy of inviting him. In a lecture, he got an immense laugh by calling Queen Elizabeth an old crock. He then laughed above all the rest. Mr. Engels noticed mannerisms, the constant shifting of his great bulk around, rotating while he was talking, flipping his eyeglasses, lumbering onto the stage, going through all his pockets, finally finding a piece of dirty yellow paper and talking from it as if most laboriously gathered in learned notes. But the paper was only for show. Father Burke saw him get out of the cab. He got onto the stair landing and then saw G.K.'s yellow paper on the ground. He had delivered his whole course with hardly a single note, occasionally looked through material for a quarter of an hour or so before speaking. All thought him a great entertainer as well as an informing talker. No one enjoyed himself more than he did. Trying to get him for an informal gathering, they mentioned, they had some Canadian ales, quite something in Prohibition days. G.K. The ales have it. Johnny. He'd chat all the time he was driving. Father Leo L. Ward. The problem of getting G.K. to and fro in a coop was only solved by backing him in. They remember G.K. in Charlie's big chair, his hands barely touching over his great expanse. They recalled that on receiving his honorary doctorate, he said the last time he received one at Edinburgh, they tapped him with John Knox's hat. He did not expect anything so drastic here. Perhaps they might tap him with Tom Heflin's sombrero. Tom Heflin was the fiercely anti-Catholic senator from Alabama. When he had been invited to Notre Dame, he was not certain where it was, but with a name like that, even if it were in the mountains of the moon, he should feel at home. If I ever meet anybody who suggests there's something Calvinistic or Puritanical in Catholicism, I shall ask, have you ever heard of the University of Notre Dame? Johnny, he'd do anything she said, or Miss Collins. They certainly had that man by the neck, but they took wonderful care of him. Mr. O'Grady. It was a very intelligent arrangement, and did they tidy him. Johnny. Very much so. It was their business every evening. Sister Madaleva. Did he walk on the campus and see the students? Johnny. 
He didn't walk much, only to Charlie Phillips' rooms. He didn't mind being a little late, but his lady and Miss Collins loaded him into the car to get him there on time. The woman they lodged with used to swear like a trooper, but she, the landlady, cried like a kid when they left, and he and the lady seemed lonesome after leaving her. In his spare time at the house, he would be drawing some fancy stuff. What did he talk about? Johnny. He'd just talk about the country. He'd admire the streams and things like that. I took him to the virgin forest, and I could hardly get him back. He even got out to notice the trees. He spent almost an hour. The women raved at me and said I must get him back at a certain time. He'd asked me the names of the trees. He loved rivers and would ask me about the fish. At one time, Father O'Donnell thought he should drive to Chicago or some big town. But he didn't care for towns. Said they all looked alike to him, so after that... We always went to the country. Someone asked, did he ever get grouchy? Johnny. He always had a smile. Was always calling the kids over to talk to him. He'd touch one with his stick to make him look round and play with him. And then he'd laugh himself sick playing with them. The kids were always around him. The ones of four or five years. Those were the ones he'd noticed the most. He liked to ask them things and then if they gave a good answer, he could get a good laugh at it. Mr. O'Grady. I know he enjoyed himself here. I met him in Ottawa afterwards. He was autographing a book. The pen was recalcitrant, and he shook it over the rug. Dear me, I'm always cluttering up people's rugs. His cousin in Ottawa had him completely surrounded by ash trays, but the cigar had ash almost half length, and it was falling everywhere. Father Ward. Father Miltner, one evening in pleasant fall weather, found G.K. on the porch. The campus was empty. He got a grunt in return to his greeting, tried three or four times, almost no answer. G.K. looked glum. Well, you're not very gay this evening. One should be given the luxury of a little private grouch once in a while. To Johnny, did he take the lecture business seriously? No. He just wanted five minutes on the porch when he would talk to no one but the kids. Mr. O'Grady, he said once, what I like about notes is that when once you begin, you can completely disregard them. He stood for the first lecture, but mostly he sat. He enjoyed a joke so much, and they enjoyed his enjoyment. Mr. Angles, for the first lecture he stood, part of him stood behind the little rostrum. After that, he sat in a big table. Father Leo R. Ward was at Oxford when he debated that the law is a hass, and was amazed at the way the undergraduates adored him. His opponent begged them not to vote for G.K. at this critical moment in the world's history. They cheered G.K., but voted against him to make the other fellow feel good. Sister Madaleva, what did he do for recreation? Johnny, he did a lot of sketching, I guess you'd call it, and he'd read the papers. Sister Madaleva, did he like the campus? Johnny, very much. Did he ever go down to the grotto? Johnny, he's seen it but he never got out of the car. Where did he go to church? Johnny. He came here to Notre Dame. He was close to 400 pounds, but he'd never give it away. He'd break an ordinary scale, I guess. I brought him under the main building. He got stuck in the door of the car. Father O'Donnell tried to help. Mr. Chesterton said it reminded him of an old Irish woman. Why don't you get out sideways? I have no sideways.
To the debate with Darrow, Francis Taylor Patterson had gone a little uneasy lest Chesterton's arguments might seem somewhat literary in comparison with the trained scientific mind and rapier tongue of the famous trial lawyer. She found, however, that both trained mind and rapier tongue were the property of G.K.C. I have never heard Mr. Darrow alone, but taken relatively, when that relativity is to Chesterton, he appears positively muddle-headed. As Chesterton summed it up, he felt as if Darrow had been arguing all afternoon with his fundamentalist aunt and simply kept sparring with a dummy of his own mental making. When something went wrong with the microphone, Darrow sat back until it could be fixed, whereupon G.K.C. jumped up and carried on in his natural voice. Science, you see, is not infallible. Chesterton had the audience with him from the start, and when it was over, everyone just sat there, not wishing to leave. They were loath to let the light die. From Chesterton, by Cyril Clements, pages 67 to 68. As in England, so also in the States, Gilbert's debating was held to be far better than his straight lecturing. He never missed the opportunity for a quick repartee, and yet, when he scored, the audience felt that he did so with utter kindness. At a debate with Dr. Horace T. Bridges of the Ethical Cultural Society on Is Psychology a Curse, Bishop Craig Stewart, who presided, describes how, in his closing remarks, Chesterton devastatingly sideswiped his opponent and wound up the occasion in a storm of laughter and applause. It is clear that I have won the debate, and we are all prepared to acknowledge that psychology is a curse. Let us, however, be magnanimous. Let us allow at least one person in this unhappy world to practice this cursed psychology, and I should like to nominate Dr. Bridges. The bishop on another occasion introduced Gilbert at a luncheon in Chicago by quoting Oliver Herford's lines. When plain folks such as you and I see the sun sinking in the sky, we think it is the setting sun, but Mr. Gilbert Chesterton is not so easily misled. He calmly stands upon his head and upside down obtains a new and Chestertonian point of view, observing thus how from his nose the sun creeps closer to his toes. He cries in wonder and delight how fine the sunrise is tonight. The fact that nearly all the headlines he chose sounded like paradoxes, the fact that they did not themselves agree with him, had on Chesterton's opponents and on some members of his audience one curious effect. Dr. Bridges, when asked his opinion of the late sparring partner, after paying warm tribute to his brilliance as a critic, his humor and his great personal charm, discovered in his subconscious, is psychology a curse, a certain intellectual recklessness that made him indifferent to truth and reality. Fundamentally, perhaps I should say subconsciously, he was a thoroughgoing skeptic and acted upon the principle that since we cannot really be positive about anything, we had better believe what it pleases us to believe. So too at the British University of Aberystwyth, when Chesterton spoke on liberty, taking first historically the fights of barons against despots, yeomen against barons, factory hands against owners, and then giving as a modern instance the fight of the pedestrian to keep the liberty of the highway. We are told that the senior history lecturer and some others were of the opinion that the whole thesis of the address was a gigantic leg pole. Chesterton must have seen again the fixed stare on the faces of the Nottingham tradesmen thirty years earlier on the famous occasion when he himself got up and played with water. 
but that earlier audience had the intellectual advantage over the university professors that they tried to find out what he meant with infinite inquiring. Gilbert often said that his comic illustrations ought not to have prevented this, but it was really more his inability to resist making himself into a figure of fun. He was funny, and the jokes were funny, but they did prevent his really being given all the position given him by so many of the modern Dr. Johnson. It's possible, though not easy, to imagine Johnson dragged from the station to his hotel by 40 undergraduates of Aberystwyth while members of the OTC secured a footing on the carriage armed with a battle axe, borrowed from the arts department, hose, rakes, spades, etc., their officers having refused them the privilege of bearing arms on the occasion. But it is scarcely possible to imagine the doctor called upon for a speech standing on the steps of the hotel and saying, You need never be ashamed of the athletic prowess of this college. The pyramids, we are told, were built by slave labor, but the slaves were not expected to haul the pyramids in one piece. Chesterton by Cyril Clemens, page 50. In San Francisco, I saw many people who had met Gilbert, including a journalist who took him to a bootleg joint, which is Western for a speakeasy. There, he asked for some specialty of the house and was offered a mule. Six of these babies will put you on your ear, remarked the bartender. What did he say about my ear, Gilbert queried? He downed three of the potent mixture, in spite of his theory against cocktails, and his host remarked his continued poise with admiration while the bartender commented, He can take it, another slang expression that appeared to be new to Gilbert. He told his host, Mr. Williams, that he delighted in meeting such folk as bartenders, and all the simpler people whom he saw too seldom. This suggested an idea. Would he come out to a school across the bay which could not afford his fees, because it educated the daughters of poor Catholics. He agreed at once, and not only talked to them brilliantly for three-quarters of an hour, but also wrote for the children about fifty autographs. But, of course, he had forgotten something. An engagement to attend a big social function. A huge car arrived at the school, complete with chauffeur and several agitated ladies. Mr. Chesterton, you have broken an important engagement. I have filled an important engagement, he answered lecturing to the daughters of the poor. If it were possible for Gilbert to be better loved anywhere than in England, that anywhere was certainly America. From coast to coast, I have met his devotees. I have come across only one expression of the opposite feeling, and that from a man who seems, from his opening sentence, to have been unable to stay away from the lectures he so detested. I heard Chesterton some six or seven times in this country. His physical makeup repelled me. He looked like a big eater, and animalism is repugnant to most of us. His appearance was against him. Not one of his lectures seemed to me worth the price of admission, and some of them were so bad that they seemed contemptuous morsels flung at audiences for whom he adjudged anything good enough. One of his lectures at the Academy Brooklyn was a great disappointment, and he charged a thousand dollars for it. It was not worth ten dollars, and Chesterton knew it. After the lecture, he remarked to a friend of mine, I think that was the worst lecture I ever gave. He may have been right. Certainly it was the worst I have ever heard him give. But he took the thousand and a bonus of $200 for the extra large crowd in attendance. No, I did not like Chesterton. What of the money? 
With his American agent, Chesterton had a quite unusual arrangement. He received half the fees paid. The agent made engagements, paid traveling expenses, and received for this the other half. Out of the half Chesterton received, he paid a further 10% to the London agent who had introduced him to the American agent. And he also had to pay the expenses of his wife and his secretary and further gave a large present to his secretary for her trouble on the tour. The rest went chiefly to GK's Weekly. I doubt if he could have told anyone at what figure the original fee stood for any lecture. One of the Brazilian fathers, then a novice, remembers Gilbert's appearance in Toronto. The subject of this lecture was culture and the coming peril. The coming peril, he explained, was not Bolshevism, because Bolshevism had now been tried. The best way to destroy a utopia is to establish it. The net result of Bolshevism is that the modern world will not imitate it. Nor by a coming peril did he mean another great war. The next great war, he added, would happen when Germany tried to monkey about with the frontiers of Poland. The coming peril was the intellectual, educational, psychological, artistic overproduction, which equally with economic overproduction threatened the well-being of contemporary civilization. People were inundated, blinded, deafened, and mentally paralyzed by the flood of vulgar and tasteless externals, leaving them no time for leisure, thought, or creation from within themselves. At question period, he was asked, Why is Dean Inge gloomy? Because of the advance of the Catholic Church. Next question, please. How tall are you, and what do you weigh? I am six feet two inches, but my weight has never been accurately calculated. Is George Bernard Shaw a coming peril? Heavens no, he is a disappearing pleasure. For an apparently haphazard collection of essays, Sidelights on New London and Newer York, published on his return to England from the second visit, has a surprising unity. Blitzed in London and out of print in New York, it is now hard to obtain, which is a pity, as it is full of good things. Discussing the fashions of today, Chesterton attempts to remove these things from the test of time and subject them to the test of truth. And this rule of an eternal test is the one he tried to apply in all his comments. Obviously, nothing human is perfect, and this includes the human judgment, even Chesterton's judgment. Talking of the past or of the present, of England or America, he may often have been wrong, and he would certainly have been the last man to claim infallibility for his judgments. His weakness as a critic was perhaps a tendency to get his proportions wrong, to make too much of some things he saw or experienced too little of others. His qualities were intellectual curiosity and personal amiability, together with the measuring rod of an eternal standard. This second visit to America only deepened in Gilbert's mind many of the impressions made by the first. Yet the atmosphere of the book is curiously different from that of what I saw in America. Living in the country even a few months has so greatly deepened his understanding. He still preferred the Quakers to the Puritans. The essential of the Puritan mood is the misdirection of moral anger. He still felt that as a whole, the United States had started with a great political idea, but a small spiritual idea, that it needed a return to the vision in politics and sociology. It was the fashion today to laugh at the wish for great open spaces, yet the real sociological object in going to America was to find those open spaces. It was not to find more engineers and electric batteries and mechanical gadgets in the home. These may have been the result of America. They were not the causes of America. Asked why he admired America, yet hated Americanization, he replied, 
I should have thought that I had earned some right to apply this obvious distinction to any foreign country, since I have consistently applied it to my own country. If egoism is excusable, I am myself an Englishman, which some identify with an egoist, and I have done my best to praise and glorify a number of English things, English inns, English roads, English jokes and jokers, even to the point of praising the roads for being crooked or the humor for being cockney. But I have invariably written, ever since I have written at all, against the cult of British imperialism. And when that perilous power and opportunity, which is given by wealth and worldly success, largely passed from the British Empire to the United States, I have applied exactly the same principle to the United States. I think imperialism is none the less imperialism, because it is spread by economic pressure or snobbish fashion rather than by conquest. Indeed, I have much more respect for the empire that is spread by fighting than the empire that is spread by finance. Sidelights on New London and New York, page 178. He felt that the real causes for admiration, the real greatness of America, could be found partly through facing its incompleteness and defects, partly through contemplating the character of the greatest and most typical of Americans, Abraham Lincoln. Whilst I was in America, I often lingered in small towns and wayside places, and in a curious and almost creepy fashion, the great presence of Abraham Lincoln continually grew upon me. I think it is necessary to linger a little in America, and especially in what many would call the most uninteresting or unpleasing parts of America, before this strong sense of a strange kind of greatness can grow upon the soul. The externals of the Middle West affect an Englishman as ugly, and yet ugliness is not exactly the point. There are things in England that are quite as ugly or even uglier. Rows of red brick villas in the suburbs of a town in the Midlands are, one would suppose, as hideous as human half-wittedness could invent or endure. But they are different. They are complete. They are, in their way, compact, rounded, and finished, with an effect that may be prim and smug, but is not raw. The surroundings of them are neat, if it be in a niggling fashion. But American ugliness is not complete, even as ugliness. It is broken off short, it is ragged at the edges, even its worthy objects have around them a sort of halo of refuse. Somebody said of the rugged and sardonic Dr. Temple, once Archbishop of Canterbury, there are no polished corners in our temple. There are no polished corners even in the great American cities, which are full of fine and stately classical buildings, not unworthy to be compared to temples. Nobody seems to mind the juxtaposition of unsightly things and important things. There's some deep difference of feeling about the need for completeness and harmony. And there's the same thing in the political and ethical life of the great Western nation. It was out of this landscape that the great president came, and one might almost trace a fanciful shadow of his figure in the thin trees and stiff wooden pillars. A man of any imagination might look down these strange streets, with their frame houses filled with the latest conveniences and surrounded with the latest litter, till he could see approaching down the long perspective that long, ungainly figure with the preposterous stove-pipe hat and the rustic umbrella and deep, melancholy eyes, the humor and the hard patience and the heart that fed upon hope deferred. Sidelights on New London and New York, page 168 to 170. Among the stately and classical buildings were those making up the University of Notre Dame, 
where he had been lecturing and which turned his musings in a direction they were ever inclined to take. Founded by a group of Frenchmen a century ago with a capital of $400 in a small log building on a clearing of 10 acres, the university today numbers 45 buildings on a 1,700-acre campus. The gold dome of the church visible from miles away, the interesting combination of the extraordinary fame of its football team with a keen spiritual life, especially fascinated Gilbert. He wrote a poem dedicated to the university and called The Arena. In it, he pictures first the golden image of the gilded house of Nero that stood for all the horrors of the pagan amphitheater. Then comes in contrast another image. I have seen where a strange country opened its secret plains about me. One great golden dome stand, lonely with its golden image one, seen afar in strange fulfillment, through the sunlit Indian summer, that apocalyptic portent that has clothed her with the sun. The boys shout Notre Dame as they watch the fortunes of the fray, and Chesterton sees Our Lady presiding fittingly even over a football contest. And I saw them shock the whirlwind of the world of dust and dazzle, and thrice they stamped a thunderclap, and thrice the sand wheel swirled, and thrice they cried like thunder on Our Lady of the Victories, the mother of the master of the masterers of the world. He recurs to a favorite thought that the mother of sorrows is the cause of human joy. Queen of death and deadly weeping, those about to live salute thee, youth untroubled, youth untortured, hateless war and harmless mirth, and the new lords larger largesse, holier bread and happier circus, since the queen of sevenfold sorrow has brought joy upon the earth. No wonder this, Johnny Mangan said, you could not drag him away from the game, if the game meant also a meditation. The holier bread came perhaps to his mind from the fact that the average of daily communion is unusually high at Notre Dame. When he desired for Americans a return to their great political vision, he also desired an opening of the eyes to that greater spiritual vision, which was to him the supreme opportunity of the human spirit. E.S.P. Haynes, in Frito Misto, comments on the absence of any reference to universities in what I saw in America. Nor have I anywhere found any discussion by Chesterton of the intellectual quality of Catholic education, any comparison with the secular teaching, either in England or in America. But that the problems of these two countries and of all the world could be solved only by what that golden dome housed, he cried with no uncertain voice. Death is in the world around, resurrection in the church of the God, who died and rose again. Queen of death and life undying, those about to live salute thee. End of chapter 28